In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Nothing stays the same. Well, well, well. There's my old friend. There you are. Oh, wow. I got a mind-blowing, mind-expanding, incredible idea that is half fantastical, half potential, and you know what? Since we're talking about the fantastic, let's just make it half reality. I know what you're thinking, George. There can't be three halves, man. Half is just half. I guess I could have called it a third. So what am I blabbering about? Well, it's kind of two parts. First off, you know I love books. I love reading and I love stories. And I love being able to convey to you who's listening to this ideas that are fantastic. So, have any of you ever heard of the Adam and Eve story? Of course you have, right? Who hasn't heard of that? However, have any of you ever heard the Adam and Eve story, The History of Cataclysms, by one Chan Thomas? I venture to say most of you have not heard that. What you might want to do, what a little fun fact for you, is there's a book called The Adam and Eve Story, The History of Cataclysms by Chan Thomas, which we will be getting into today. Now, this book, if you try to buy it, is about $600 because it's no longer in print. Actually, let me let me put a little caveat on that. The book is in print. You can get the new version of it, which is cost you like five, 10 bucks if you buy it used on maybe Amazon. However, the original hard copy by Bengal Tiger Press will run you close to $600. You're probably thinking, why does that matter? George, is it a first edition? Is that why it's so expensive? No, because there are pages in this hard copy book that we have next to us that 
are not in the new book. In fact, there's a lot of hype and a lot of speculation about why that is. Some people say that it was banned due to the information inside of it. Some people say that it was never banned. It was just that the people who participated in the book were pulled in and questioned by the CIA. And another fun fact, if you want to go on the CIA website, you can look this book up and see that it has a special designation on that site about banned books. So why all the hubbub? Well, there is an alternative theory to evolution that was put forth by people such as Charles Hapgood, who wrote a book called The Path of the Pole, a gentleman by the name of Cuvier, and multiple other really world-renowned geologists had a theory that was running counter to the theory of evolution, and that is that we as a species, it's not that we evolved from monkeys. What you talking about, Willis? We always say, that might be your ancestor, but it's not our ancestor. He is a relative, but not our ancestor. This alternative theory of evolution is one that is hidden to most people. In fact, hidden to all of us. That our history is not known to us, and we are a species with amnesia. Due to cataclysms. And we're going to get into this here. It's going to be a couple parts. But the crux of the argument is that if you think of the world in fractal terms, our planet spins around its axis. Our planet spins around the sun, which in turn spins or spirals around the galaxy. And our galaxy Okay, let's do that part again. That part sucked. If you look at it from a fractal nature, let's look at it like that. Our planet spins around its axis. Our planet on its axis spins around the solar system. Our solar system spins around our galaxy, and our galaxy spins around the universe. Right, the great year, the galactic year. If you think about our planet, how it's tilted on its axis, and as it spins around the sun, we have different seasons. Doesn't it also make sense that if that is in fact true, and we're corkscrewing our our solar system is corkscrewing through our galaxy, which is corkscrewing through the universe. Doesn't it also make sense that maybe there's seasons in these other galactic years? Doesn't it make sense that as we spin through the vast universe that we, and by we I mean our solar system, come across different levels of electromagnetism, magnetic resonances and different coming closer to different solar system changes the weather in which our solar system will in fact be subjected to coming across binary systems with two suns like there's just so much going on there but it makes sense and if you just think of it like seasons on our planet 
are fractal in that our solar system also has seasons and our galaxy probably has seasons and so on and so forth. If you just think about it for a minute, it makes so much sense. Just like we have snow in the wintertime and heat in the summertime, is it not plausible that we have cataclysms that come at certain times as we move through the galactic year? Closer to the sun, further from the sun, closer to the center of the galaxy, further from the center of the galaxy. All these factors create dynamic changes in the Earth's weather system. The magnetic resonances, the magnetic fields, this, the electromagnetic fields, these create anomalies. And one way to prove this is to look at how fast the migration of the North Pole is happening. During the 20th century, it moved 680 miles, or 1,100 kilometers. And since 1970, its rate of motion has accelerated from 9 to 52 kilometers, or 5.6 to 32 miles per year. As of early 19, the magnetic North Pole is moving from Canada towards Siberia, at a rate of approximately 55 kilometers per year, or 34 miles per year. So we've gone from moving 9 kilometers to 55 kilometers. For my American friends, we've gone from 5 miles to 32 miles per year. That's a clear acceleration. And let me ask you this. What do you think happens to our weather system? What do you think happens to the jet stream when the magnetic North Pole is migrating further away? Do you think that the global temperature begins to change? Doesn't it make more sense that the climate, the climate of our planet, or if you want to call it climate change, is more subject to the migration of Earth's magnetic field than it is to you breathing CO2? Doesn't it seem a little bit more plausible that maybe this giant, unbelievable closed system we call planet Earth is much more dynamic than we even can understand? Doesn't it also make sense that maybe the magnetic North Pole and the magnetic South Pole spin around our planet just like we spin around our axis, just like we spin around our solar system, just like we spin around our galaxy, just like we spin around the universe. It makes sense that the magnetic poles would also oscillate just like everything else in our system. Oh, look at him, motherfucker, look at him! And they spin it, nigga, they spin it! They spin it, nigga, they spin it! They spin it, nigga, they spin it! And as those poles move around or migrate around the globe, doesn't it also make sense that that would cause cataclysms to happen? That would cause unbelievable meteorologic, meteorologic events to happen, right? Doesn't that just seem plausible to everybody? That's what this book is getting into, the Adam and Eve story, the history of cataclysms. When these cataclysms happen, we 
as a species go away or we get reduced to such a small amount that we have to start over in a new stone age. The planet isn't going anywhere. We are. We're going away. Pack your shit, folks. We're going away. And we won't leave much of a trace either. The book makes the argument that when these cataclysms hit, they wipe out the entirety of, maybe not the entirety, but they wipe out 99% of life on our planet. And the evidence is all around us. The evidence is all around us to, to talk about this evidence. I'm going to bring in our resident expert. Aloha, George, and thanks for joining us today. I wanted to ask you a couple questions. The first one out of the box is, can you tell the listeners a little bit about our species and nature? Over 90%, over, way over, 90% of all the species that have ever lived on this planet, ever lived, are gone. They're extinct. We didn't kill them all. They just disappeared. That's what nature does. They disappear these days at the rate of 25 a day. And I mean regardless of our, our behavior. Irrespective of how we act on this planet, 25 species that were here today will be gone tomorrow. That's classic. George, could you speak to us a little bit more, perhaps on the subject of the relationship between humankind, human history, and our planet? Maybe the relationship between all three of those. Do you ever think about the arithmetic? Planet has been here four and a half billion years. We've been here, what, 100,000? Maybe 200,000? And we've only been engaged in heavy industry for a little over 200 years. 200 years versus four and a half billion. That is a great point, George. When you really think about those numbers, it kind of puts things in perspective. What's your take on cataclysms? Do you think that the Earth has gone through cataclysms, will go through cataclysms in the future, or do you think that maybe the biggest threat to the planet or might be mankind? Do you think that we as humans are a cataclysm? Conceit to think that somehow we're a threat, that somehow we're going to put in jeopardy this beautiful little blue-green ball. The planet has been through a lot worse than us, been through all kinds of things worse than us. Been through earthquakes, volcanoes, plate tectonics, continental drift, solar flares, sunspots, magnetic storms, the magnetic reversal of the poles, hundreds of thousands of years of bombardment by comets and asteroids and meteors, worldwide floods, tidal waves, worldwide fires, erosion, cosmic rays, recurring ice ages, and we think some plastic bags and some aluminum cans are going to make a difference? The planet... The planet, the planet isn't going anywhere. We are. We're going away. Pack your shit, folks. We're going away. And we won't leave much of a trace either. Thank God for that. Maybe a little styrofoam. Maybe. And this gentleman, Chan Thomas, he gives a lot of of great evidence as as our solar system goes through this galactic year we go through this season of cataclysms and he's got he's got the breakdown we'll go through it it's like 20,000 and the next one is 
14,000 and then 7,000 and then it goes back the other way, 7,000, 14,000, 20,000. And when these cataclysms hit, they wipe out 99% of life on earth. And if you think about evolution that way, you know, it reminds me of, do you remember the story Socrates told about Solon meeting the Egyptian pharaohs? He told a story about how Solon was meeting with the Egyptian pharaohs. And as they went down underneath the Sphinx into the Hall of Records, the pharaohs told Solon, as he looked upon this vast corridor of golden pharaoh statues, Solon asked the the current pharaoh to the depths of knowledge, where did the depths of knowledge attained by pharaohs come from? How is it that they have so much history? And the pharaoh replied to Solon as a, he said something to the effect of, you young Greeks, you young, you youngins, you have no concept of time. You have no idea what goes on. You are but babes. You are but baby lambs on the face of this earth. There has been many, many civilizations before you, vastly greater than you. And so when these cataclysms come, they eradicate all life on earth, leaving no trace. So think about the Egyptian pharaohs. Then you think about the Library of Alexandria. Then you think about, remember Vishnu in the, and the text of the Naga Hammadi and the, you know, the ancient scriptures from India. Like these are all different civilizations that we have, but merely fragments, merely fragments of our memory, of a collected memory. And doesn't it make more sense that that we don't know what happened in the past. I mean, we're, we're wrong all the time. From the great Greeks thinking that we were the center of the universe to the planets being encased in glass to us being on the moon to all these things, right? Like, if you think about it, we always get it wrong. Why is that? Because we, we don't know our past. We're a species in amnesia. We don't understand how we got here. And it brings me to another point. Like, I doesn't this make more sense too? I'm going to go way out on this woo-woo tree here. But I think technology comes from our past. I know that sounds ridiculous, but just hear me out a little bit. Like, doesn't it seem more like we are deciphering old ideas and then just now being able to put them in practice. You know, when you think about the UFO, like what the hell is the UFO? Is a UFO something that comes from another planet? Probably not. Probably not. You know, it's a unidentified flying object. And that just means we can't identify it. But you know what we could? We could have re we could have back engineered something like that. We could have found a craft and been able to back engineer it, right? 
that makes much more sense. Like we probably have have found these artifacts. We probably have, I'm sure, in some private collection somewhere or some governments or Area 51. Pick your favorite secret spot, Los Alamos, whatever. We have technology and we have texts, probably a lot of texts in languages we don't understand. We have technology we don't understand. And we have our best engineers on the planet trying to decipher these things. And when new technology comes out, that is us not creating something. That is, in fact, us deciphering something from the past. And then it just gets rolled out. You know, isn't it weird how Albert Einstein's ideas came from... You know, if you read up on that guy, there's a lot of holes in that guy's story. Doesn't it kind of seem like every now and then like a new technology is rolled out and given to the masses? And if you if you dig down and find out where the hell did this idea come from? It's pretty murky. You know, pick your idea, pick your technology, whether it, or it's theories of, you know, like the splitting of the atom or the the ideas of Einstein's relativity or you know, all these ideas seem like they were, they didn't come up, they weren't, they weren't thought of by the person that claimed to come up with them. They, it seems that they were deciphered from old text and then we figured out a way to put them in play. You know, all this rhetoric, like, let me try to put that, let me try to put a little pin in this. You know, we talk about all these grand ideas of technology and how great we are as a species and, and all these ideas to protect the planet and save the world. But the truth is, we can't even protect each other. Right? How many homeless people are in your town? And you have people claiming that they want to save the planet. It doesn't make any sense. Like, we can't even protect each other. And there's all trillions of dollars going into these you know, NGOs and special economic zones to save the planet. Like, that's such bullshit. We can barely save the homeless people that live under a bridge by your house. How the fuck are we going to save the planet? Right? So if you look at it from that perspective, we say all these grand things on a grand scale, but in the grand scheme of things, we can't do any of it. We're not there technologically. Like... If you look at some of the recent launches of the Tesla Space X rockets, right? Like only recently, only recently has Elon Musk been able to shoot his rocket into space and then bring it back down, land it on the platform and use it again. Right? And he sure as hell didn't do it the very first time. Even the most recent one exploded. Like the technology we claim we had in the 60s that we did with a less than a cell phone we can't do now like does anybody like you see the hole in that story right we claim to have gone to the moon through the van allen radiation belt which nothing no living organism can go into the depths of outer space without having their proteins just pulled apart. You can't live out there. You can't go out there. It's 
It's impossible. We've never done it, but yet we claim that we have. It's such an outlandish story to say, that, oh yeah, in the 60s, we just fired up the rocket, went to the moon, we went in orbit around the moon, and then we dropped a little spaceship out of the space shuttle, landed that on the moon, and then we dropped a dune buggy out of there, went down, hit some golf balls, did some donuts, then we got back up into our lunar lander, jumped back into the space shuttle, and then shot home. That's fucking bullshit. There's no way. There's no way. We can't even do that now. And they did it on the first try? Come on. Come on. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Here's a little cognitive dissonance for you. Let's say that you believe that story that we're given. Let's say we did do that. If you believe that we did all the Apollo missions, taking us to the moon, making us a, a space-faring species, the Americans are the only ones to do it, here's what you also have to believe. If you believe that story, you also must believe this. And this is Werner von Braun, the father of the modern rocket, card-carrying Nazi. He was a card-carrying Nazi hanging Jews outside his lab in Germany. Fact. He comes over, Operation Paperclip, he comes over to the U.S. with other card-carrying Nazis. NASA, the U.S. space program, which if you believe got us to the moon, was in fact headed by card-carrying Nazis. The engineers that made it happen in NASA, all white men. All of them. It was all white men, mostly card-carrying Nazis, that got the U.S. space agency to the moon. NASA currently is not made up of white men. It's made up of all kinds of men, women, different ethnicities, different sexual orientations. So if you believe that we went to the moon, you must also believe that it was done by only white men. And as soon as NASA began becoming much more diverse, celebrating diversity, now we no longer can even build a rocket to get there. So what's it going to be? Is it the master race, the incredibly high IQ of the master race that got us to the moon? Or is it all bullshit? How's that for cognitive dissonance? That, I, in my opinion, that has to be, you know, that's an example of pure bullshit. However, I think that maybe the technology to do that was found. Like we have the, we have the text and we have the ideas and maybe even the designs to do it. It's just that we don't have the mental capacity to understand how to build these things. But I think the schematics exist. I think that we have found you know, parts of the Library of Alexandria, parts of ancient text, and or ancient crafts that can do things that we don't even understand. And that that's what our space program is. And that's what our technology program is, is in fact trying to decipher these old ideas and put them into play. That's where I get my idea that all technology comes from the past. And so 
This is a quick little intro here just to get us into this. This book called The Adam and Eve Story, The History of Cataclysm, it's going to blow your mind. Uh, I'll probably end up doing a little bit of a video on there, or at least maybe trying to link to some pictures. Let me just go ahead and give you a, a little synopsis here of what it might be like to be in one of these great cataclysms. With a rumble so low as to be inaudible, growing, throbbing, and then fuming into the thundering roar, the earthquake starts. Only, it's not like any earthquake in recorded history. In California, the mountains shake like ferns in a breeze. The mighty Pacific rears back and piles up into a mountain of seawater more than two miles high, then starts its race eastward. With the force of a thousand armies, the wind attacks ripping, shredding, everything in its supersonic bombardment. The unbelievable mountain of Pacific seawater follows the wind eastward, burying Los Angeles and San Francisco as if they were but grains of sand. Nothing but nothing stops the relentless, overwhelming onslaught of wind and ocean. Across the continent, the thousand-mile-per-hour wind wreaks its hell, its unholy vengeance everywhere, mercilessly, unceasing. Every living thing is ripping to shreds while being blown across the countryside. And earthquakes leave no place untouched. In many places, the Earth's molten sublayer breaks through and spreads a sea of white-hot liquid fire to add to the Holocaust. Within three hours, the fantastic wall of seawater moves across the continent, burying the wind-ravaged land under two miles of seething water coast to coast. In a fraction of a day, all vestiges of civilization are gone. And the great cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Dallas, New York, Boston, are nothing but legends. Barely a stone is left where millions walked just a few hours before. A few lucky ones who managed to find shelter from the screaming wind on the lee side of a high mountain peak, such as Mount Massive, watched the sea of molten fire breaking through the quaking valleys below. The raging waters follow at supersonic speeds, piling higher and higher, steaming over the molten earth fire and rising almost to their feet. Only great high mountains such as this one can withstand the cataclysmic onslaught. North America is not alone in her death throes. Central America suffers the same cannonade, wind, earth, fire, and inundation. South America finds the Andes not high enough to stop the cataclysmic violence pounded out by nature in her berserk rage. In less than a day, Ecuador, Peru, and western Brazil are shaken madly by the devastating earthquake. The Andes are piled higher and higher by the Pacific supersonic onslaught as it urges over itself against the mountain. The entire continent is burned by molten earth fire, buried under cubic miles of catastrophically violent seas, then turned into a frozen hell. Everything freezes, man, beast, plant, and mud are all rock hard in less than four hours. Europe cannot escape the onslaught. The raging Atlantic piles higher and higher on itself, following the screeching wind eastward. The Alps, Pyrenees, Urals, 
and Scandinavian mountains are shaken, then heaved even higher when the wall of water strikes. Western Africa and the sands of the Sahara vanish in nature's wrath. Under savage attack by wind and ocean, the area bounded by Zaire, South Africa, and Kenya suffers only severe earthquakes and winds, little inundation. Survivors there marvel at the sun standing still in the sky for nearly half a day. Eastern Siberia and the Orient suffer a strange fate indeed, as though a giant subterranean scythe sweeps away the Earth's foundations, accompanied by the wind in its screaming symphony of supersonic death and destruction. As the Arctic basin leaves its polar home, eastern Siberia, Manchuria, China, and Burma are subjected to the same annihilation as South America. Wind, earth, fire, inundation, and freezing. Jungle animals are shredded to ribbons by the wind, piled into mountains of flesh and bone, and buried under avalanches of homogenized seawater and mud. Then comes the sudden, seemingly infinite supply of terrible, instant, paralyzing temperature drop of 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Not man, beast, plant, muck, earth, nor water is left unfrozen in the entire Eastern Asian continent, most of which remains below sea level. Antarctica and Greenland, with their ice caps, now rotate around the Earth in the torrid zone, and the fury of wind and inundation marches on for six days. During the sixth day, the oceans start to settle in their new homes running off the high grounds. On the seventh day, the horrendous rampage is over. The Arctic Ice Age is ended, and a new Stone Age begins. The oceans, the great homogenizers, have laid down another deep layer of mud over the existing strata in the Great Plains, as exposed in the Grand Canyon, Painted Desert, Monument Valley, and the Badlands. The Bay of Bengal Basin, just east of India, is now at the North Pole. The Pacific Ocean, just west of Peru, is at the South Pole. Greenland and Antarctica, now rotating equatorially, find their ice caps dissolving madly in the tropical heat. Massive walls of water and ice surge towards the oceans, taking everything from mountains to plains in gushing, heaving paths, while creating immense seasonal moraines. In less than 25 years, the ice caps are gone and the oceans around the world rise over 200 feet with the newfound water. The torrid zone will be shrouded in a fog for generations from the enormous amounts of moisture poured into the atmosphere by the melting ice caps. New ice caps begin to form in the new polar area. Greenland and Antarctica emerge with verdant, tropical foliage. Australia is the new, unexplored continent in the North Temperate Zone, with only a few handfuls of survivors populating its vastness. New York lies at the bottom of the Atlantic, shattered, melted by earth and fire, and covered by unbelievable amounts of mud. Of San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Dallas, and Boston, not a trace is left. They all will join the legends of the seven cities of Cibola. What's left of Egypt emerges from its Mediterranean inundation, new and higher, still the land of the ages. The commonplace of our time becomes the mysteries, the mysterious Baalbek of the new era. 
a new era. Yes, the cataclysm has done its work well. The greatest population regulator of all does once more for man what he refuses to do for himself. And the planet on which he lives and drives the pitiful few who survive into a new stone age. After this cataclysm, we join Noah, Adam and Eve, Atlantis, Mu, and Olympus. And Jesus joins Osiris, Ta'aroa, Zeus, and Vishnu. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that... I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, Go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.